Hello and welcome again to another episode of Mormon Matters Podcast, your thoughtful yet provocative weekly romp through all things Mormon, including current events, popular culture, politics, etc., etc. I'm your host, John DeLynn. Today we're excited to have back three of our uh, regular panelists. Uh, John Hamer is Executive Director of the John Whitmer Historical Association. John is a cultural Mormon and an independent researcher, historian, and map maker. He's currently co-editing a book called Scattering of the Saints, Schisms Within Mormonism, due out this September. Welcome, John Hamer. John, thanks. Uh, Ann Porter is a software developer and a married mother of three. She is a convert of over 20 years. She writes for the Mormon-themed blog, theculturalhall.com, and is also guest blogging at various stages of Mormondom. And I'm going to meet Ann Porter face-to-face after knowing her for almost two years in a few days. Welcome, Ann Porter. Hi, John. I'm looking forward to meeting you face-to-face, too. Would you like to uh, blurt out the song you've been uh that's the life you save may be your own. There, that's the last time. <laughs> and that's the Jackson 5 for, for our listeners? That's the Jackson that right? 5 from 1970. Anne is on a motion. Those are the only words I know. Anne, um, Anne had dinner with uh, J.C. Wright and uh, Taryn C. Wright, and so she's on cloud nine. Is that right, Anne? Absolutely. And I got 15 ears of sweet corn for $3. Holy so. moly. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. Great to be in the Midwest. It is. Although Utah corn's not that bad. All right, Tom Grover is the co-host of 610 AM KVNU's For the People, broadcasted from Logan each weekday, along with uh, Ryan Yonk. Tom holds a bachelor's degree in political science. Um, I'm going to say that he's a true blue Aggie, although he asked me not to say that. And he is planning (laughs) on attending law school this fall if he can get into a good school. Tom, welcome to to uh to Mormon matters. It's great to be back, John. All right. Well, today we have lots of fun. Um I think uh, a plurality of fun we have planned for you today. <laughs> and uh and uh, it was uh, our own John Hamer who recommended that because of a Slate article and maybe a few other things that the topic for today for the full program is going to be plural marriage. Um, a fun topic and one that's been in the news a little bit as of late. So uh, we thought we would kick it off with a little discussion about HBO's program called Big Love that uh, I imagine few of our listeners have seen. I've seen a few episodes, but John, why don't you uh, kick us off? All right. Well, HBO has uh, started something that I think is a first for Mormon culture. In the same way that they've been in the past had a... uh, original series set in other kinds of subcultural settings, like, for example, the award-winning Sopranos that is set in kind of B-level gangster society in New Jersey. Uh, They've now set a series uh, in kind of a fringe of Mormon culture, Mormon fundamentalist culture, uh, where a a group of uh, a family of independent uh, fundamentalist Mormons are living off in the suburbs uh, among a bunch of among a bunch of mainstream Mormons as their neighbors, and they're having interactions with them. And in the same way that uh, it's in four other these other series in the past, if you, you have been informed by um, the culture that they are set in, uh, HBO's Big Love series uh, 
is really doing that for Mormon culture. And so they'll talk to their neighbors, and the neighbors are trying to get them to go to Relief Society and all kinds of things like that. And uh, they don't explain, oh, well, Relief Society is our, our church's women's program or anything like that. It's just stuff that they just all take as rote. And so it's all, you know, it just makes for a very rich background that's all set in. And, and, and as a result, I think it just, it's a very kind of real series. So, so just, uh, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. There's a, there's a main husband. What's his name? The, Bill Hendrickson. The, Bill, right? Yeah. And he has three wives, right? Right. And his second wife is the daughter of the prophet of a fundamentalist Southern Utah, you know, branch, right? Right. So exactly. So he, Bill, Bill has grown up in a fundamentalist sect. And so his sect would effectively be, it's called, in this case, it's the second largest one. So it would effectively be the Apostolic United Brethren is one of the sects, the fundamentalist Mormon sects in Utah. And so he was the, he was the son of a previous prophet, and then, or I'm sorry, his he's not the son of a previous prophet. His I'm, I'm now I've confused it. Okay, so his he's from the family though. His mother, he's the grandson. So his mother was the daughter of a previous prophet, and then at a certain point, a new prophet has taken over, and that guy's uh, daughter is now Bill's second second wife. But he had kind of escaped. Uh, the lifestyle, and he wasn't living it. He had been living a regular monogamous lifestyle until a certain point. His first wife uh, uh, had cancer, and so at a certain point, to t- help out with the family, they decided to embrace the principle, and he married the second wife, and then later later he added a third wife. So, Right, and they live sort of, it looks like it's almost Draper Sandy. Um, right. And oftentimes the scenes will show like the temple in the background, the Salt Lake City temple in the background as they're driving around in their pickup truck or their SUV, right? Yeah, so it's it's clearly set in Utah. And, yeah, I think that when they see the temple in the background, it's when he goes and visits his lawyer. So his lawyer, I guess, has a has a office that faces Temple Square. Yeah. And apparently there's, uh, there's quite a bit of uh, sex in it. Is that right? Yeah, um, yes. <laughs> I no, think no. There, there's a, so it's like an HBO scene, and that's certainly, I've talked to a bunch of fundamentalist Mormons, and the part that they are obviously the least, absolutely the least comfortable with is the, is, is the, are, you know, is having sex scenes. And so in that case, you know, although it's a setting in a Mormon culture in a way, it's not a setting that Mormons can particularly, are, are particularly probably interested in, in, in embracing because, you know, I think a lot of times Mormons aren't as interested in, in the, in the broader culture's use of sex scenes and all those kind of things in, in cinema and, and TV. So. At least not, uh, at least nothing that they would want to own up to publicly. Um, now, now I, uh, I've seen a few of the early episodes. Uh, has the sex tape tapered off since the first few yeah, episodes? Yeah, it, it, it has, and then, and that's, and I prefer that too. I'm not, I'm not, I don't need that. Yeah, <laughs> I actually like it because I like the relationships, I like the politics, I like all of those kind of set, those kind of stories, and so in a way, it's like a you know any other series that they have nowadays that are. And TV is has ceasing to be episodic, where everything resets at the end of each episode, and the episodes can be watched out of order and everything like that. And instead, you know, in modern series like Lost and every other thing, they are all just building on each other, and so you watch them episode after episode. And that's what this is like too. Now, Ann, Ann and Tom, have either of you seen Big Love, or do either of you have uh, any thoughts or comments on it? Let's start with Ann, and then and then Tom. 
everything I know about Big Love, I've read on my friend Randy's blog. Um, we don't we don't get HBO mostly because I have a I have a, an eight year old, and we're not allowed to watch grown up TV. Um, if it's not Toon Disney, we don't watch it. Right. Um, but he, um, but I, I have a good friend who really, really loves the show, and he he posts a lot of some brief plot synopses with his his take on it and stuff. So, and I've really enjoyed reading reading that. But I, I don't know anything about the show other than what I've read. Okay, I haven't seen it. How about you, Tom? I haven't seen it, but I would love to see it. And my uh, general thought on it is, I think maybe some of the apprehension uh, is that America might see the show and uh, and think that you know what polygamists have uh, lives that are pretty similar to mine, and maybe they're not a circus act after all. Well, how, uh, Tom? In your opinion, from what you've heard about the show, I mean, yeah, I was surprised when I interviewed Ann Wild. Uh, some of you will have seen uh, my Mormon Stories five-part interview with Ann Wild, who's a, a Mormon fundamentalist who, who was married um, in, a, in a plural marriage for many years. She was raised traditional LDS, um, divorced her first husband, married uh, her second husband, who had two other wives. And she actually raised her step, her, she raised her children. She continued to attend LDS wards and raised her children in the ward uh, all throughout their young and, and teenage years. And everyone just thought she was a divorcee, or as she says, a gay divorcee. Um, and I think she means happy uh, when she says that. But but um, I, I was, you know, that sort of surprised me to think, no, nah, polygamy and, you know, in, in, are along the Wasatch Front. But, but Tom, how realistic do you think, from what you've heard about Big Love, you know, it, how, how realistic is that really? Uh, I think it's a lot more realistic than people realize, uh, especially with uh, uh, the Apostolic Brethren. They have a, a lot of people that keep uh, one foot uh, still in the LDS Church, and they consider the LDS Church to be fulfilling a lot of divine roles. And, and, and as we talk about what's referred to as an 1886 revelation, that'll make a lot more sense as to why uh, they're in but out and out but in. And we're going to talk about that in a bit. Yeah, I mean, we'll get more into that later, but 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 uh, yeah, there's there's a lot more of it going on than people realize, and right under their nose, uh, <laughs> without uh, raising a, a huge profile. So, what are the chances that that in regular Salt Lake City wards there are polygamists attending, and maybe even in in Utah temples that there are polygamists actually, you know, in, attending temple ceremony stuff. Do we know? I, no, there's no way to know. There are, and that's about that's about that's all we know. Have we? Have you heard of instances where people either attend sacrament meeting or even attend the temple? Um, sacrament meeting, but not the temple. Okay. I, I, but I, but I wouldn't rule it out. It, it would be very intuitive that that would be going on. To what extent, I don't know. I mean, it's not. It's you know, it's not tens of thousands of people by any means, but um, there there is a a group of people that uh, do that. Interesting. Yeah, I saw it I there. That in the um, in the book that I'm, I'm editing, you mentioned that, that the scattering of the saints schism within Mormonism. There's an article, uh, actually by an employee of the church who uh, is a, a researcher who has kind of uh, gone through and found examples of um, people who were secretly, completely, you know, without the church knowing, secretly practicing polygamy uh, 
and were still in the employ of the church in fairly fairly large numbers all through the 60s and stuff like that. So I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know if um, that if, you, if the conclusion is that that's been brought down to the present, but certainly in the in the in the transitional generations, the transition happens later than a lot of us you know may think. Wow. Yeah, well, I guess we'll probably get more into this, but you know, a lot of our listeners will know that even though the the manifesto, the first manifesto, was released in 1890, um, even apostles and and members of the first presidency either performed uh, polygamous marriages or even um, took extra wives well into the early 1900s, at least at, uh, into 1905, which is around when the second manifesto was released, right? Is that right? 1904 yeah. was the second one, 1904. April 1904. And then yeah. John Hamer, something you sent me today said there was actually a third manifesto. Is that right? Yeah, third, what, I mean, I guess it's called the third and final manifesto, which takes place, I, now I don't remember the exact date, but it's in the 30s, and it's um, when Heber J. Grant uh, says, that, you know, this is, we're, fi- we're really going to take care of this. And, and after that, that's when uh, the Utah legislature makes polygamy a felony, and that's when the um, the Utah the Utah government starts working in concert with the Arizona government to raid polygamous uh, compounds. Yeah, and I I only bring this up not to talk about the strains because we're going to go back and talk about those. But uh, you know, I wonder how much polygamy was going on in the LDS Church from let's say 1910 until you know 1980. I one of the things that really surprised me when I read about Apostle Richard was it Richard Lyman who was an apostle in the 30s and 40s. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I know the name, yes. Uh, he, he was the guy, he was the, one of the apostles in the 20th century, excommunicated, and he was excommunicated for adultery. But one of the things that was I was surprised to learn was that he, he considered this uh, additional person he was having an affair with as his plural or celestial wife. He just didn't, you know, didn't legally count it as such. So, you know, that that do you guys know anything about mid to late nineteenth century polygamy within the LDS Church itself, other than John, what you've read, well, that, that research has done? I'm just gonna say that I mean, there's a there's a long, um, you know, period of transition. It's not that, you know, in 1890, there's you know, the manifesto which now recorded as official declaration number one in the Doctrine and Covenants, it's not that, uh, that that was issued and then suddenly there was no more practice of, the, of plural marriage. For one thing, uh, everybody who was already in a, in a plural marriage continued to be in a plural marriage, you know, even, even after all the different manifestos. So, you know, if you all of the, all the church, first church president that was not a polygamist was George Albert Smith. You know, because before, prior to that, everybody had already been in, in polygamous marriages. Right. Yeah. So it's, a, it's a transitional time. Right. Go ahead, Tom. And, and I was going to say, there's a, there's a couple of periods I would break this down into. That from 1890 to about 1904 to 1906, um, you still had really high-level leaders of the church promoting polygamy. Um, and then you have from about 1906 to 1910, 1911, where you still have a lot of rogue uh, local leaders and rogue bishops, and that's where you see a lot of um, the uh, the plural marriages taking place. And then by the 1920s and 30s, a lot of the fundamentalists are starting to um, organize on their own and kind of branch off. And in a real simplified way, that's really how the breakaways uh, began. 
and it moved away. It moved out of the church formally. Well, let's um, let's let's loop back to Big Love real quick, John. What was there other stuff you wanted to say about Big Love or other thoughts you had before we move into the bit of the history and the, and the branches themselves? Well, I just I mean the main thing about it is that I I don't have HBO either, but I go with all my friends who aren't Mormons, and we all go over to a friend's house and get an event every Monday night and watch it. And one thing I I like about it is. In, in the same way that there's so many of these good TV shows these days, I think, but this one uh, is really fun for me because I feel like this is really set in, you know, the, a culture that I really know, and I and I still do things so that they get really right, and I say that's really, you know, kind of a Mormon way of looking at things, and, and it's always just, you know, tickles me that it's happening. Now I understand that obviously it's not the kind of publicity that I'm not that all Mormons are excited about because people don't want to talk about, you know talk about polygamy or see polygamy promoted. I think it's a natural also a natural Mormon cultural thing to want to put a positive spin on everything and not to talk about dirty laundry and all these kind of things. But I don't know, it's very real and it's pretty cool and so I enjoy it. Well yeah, I the I know a lot of people who really enjoy it too. So for those of you who don't mind HBO, don't mind some profanity and some occasional nudity, um you may enjoy Big Love. And and maybe just like Sex in the City and uh Tom, I heard you mentioning Sopranos on uh public television or at least on uh, an edited version, maybe an edited version of Big Love will come out that uh L- yeah. traditional LDS folks will feel good about. That could uh, definitely happen, yeah. That's happened on A&E with The Sopranos. Yeah. Well, good. Well, let's maybe let's move into the next portion of the show, which is just sort of tracing a bit of the history of the various sects. And, Tom, uh, I think that's S-E-C-T-S, sects. Um, <laughs> Tom, why don't you start us off and uh, tell us what you know. There is, a, John, a, a great graphic that the uh, Salt Lake Tribune has that charts this. Uh, yeah. And I think when you post this, it, yeah, it would it would be good if we post that for listeners to follow because it's easier to keep track of all this. There's there's, there's a lot to um, keep track of here. So when you all mail that to me and I'll post it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really really helpful. Uh, I guess I guess the, the first place to start and uh, Anne and 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 John H, if you want to uh, chime in too, the best place I can think is probably the uh, 1886 Revelation because that really um, is where the schism begins, even before the first manifesto. Um, and, and the story is, is a pretty simple one that, uh, John Taylor was, was hiding out in Centerville and, uh, it's alleged by, um, by, by John Woolley and Lauren Woolley that during the night he had a, had a, a, a vision and Joseph Smith appeared to him and told him to make sure that polygamy never left the earth. And then the next day, John Taylor recounts this to a number of individuals, including the Woolies, um, and, and essentially commissions them to keep the practice of polygamy alive. Uh, and, and there's a, a, a big debate about the authenticity of the revelation, and it goes back and forth. And one of the interesting things, um, too, and I was just trying to find this on my laptop, and John you kind of alluded to this, is this revelation actually had a lot of traction for a lot of years. Uh, into the 1930s and even into the 1950s, you can find talks by members of the actual 12 repudiating this uh, revelation. BYU has a podcast where they have, uh, they call it classic speeches. Have you guys ever listened to that? Yes. 
Yeah, and they have, and I and I just tried to find it, and 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 maybe later I'll email you with who it was, but they had a had an apostle, I believe it was in the fifties, uh, giving a, a, a speech about something, and he made he kind of went off on this tangent, just ripping apart this eighteen eighty six revelation. So it's something that really had a lot of traction. You don't hear about it now, uh, and then and then uh, Johnny it was nineteen thirty nineteen thirty eight the the uh, third. Uh, uh, Third uh, manifesto you were speaking of? Yeah. Uh, I, I have another one here from 1933 um, that came out as an official statement by the First Presidency. And it says, It is alleged that on September 26th or 27th, 1886, John Taylor received a revelation from the Lord. But as to the, this pretended revelation, it should be said that the archives of the Church contain such no such revelation. The archives contain no record of any such revelation. Then it goes on and just, you know, denounces this. And so we see for a long time that this, this revelation, it really has a lot of traction. And um, some of the early fundamentalists published uh, a, basically a magazine. It was called Truth, and they disseminate this uh, in Salt Lake Valley among um, members of the LDS Church. Now, now and, Tom, Tom, yeah. let me just stop you for a second. I'm sure our listeners know, but you know, it wouldn't hurt to just clarify that um, you know polygamy... You know, we know that it started a little bit before Nauvoo, but it really picked up steam in Nauvoo. We know that right. it wasn't sort of admitted as a public practice until, what, 1855? Is that right? It was 1853. 1853. Yeah. And, and, and we also know that in the journal discourses, what, what made this probably difficult for, for subsequent prophets and apostles is there are numerous prophets and apostles saying that polygamy is not only God's will and a new and everlasting covenant, um, but also uh, a requirement for exaltation. So once sort of that gauntlet's been thrown down, of course it would be hard for John Taylor or others to sort of go back on what Brother Brigham had taught, what Brother Joseph had in some ways died for, and uh, rolled it back. So my question is, you know, uh, you know, Ann Wilde mentioned this when I interviewed her. She actually claimed that the church had a document um, that was signed by John Taylor that was the actual revelation, and she's pretty careful about the things she says. So that took me by surprise. I don't know where she was getting that, but you know, given that um, given that Mormons continued practicing polygamy into the early 1900s, even after they told the world that they were going to stop, is there even a chance that this John Taylor thing happened? And I'd like each person to maybe say their view or opinion, or is this just something that sort of is revisionist history that the fundamentalists in the 1930s and 40s just made up and sort of tried to tag on jo- J- John Taylor or was just sort of folklore, you know, sort of, yeah, sort of folklore um, to justify what they wanted to keep doing? So, Tom, I'll have you opine first and then we'll we'll have the others. Well, when you, when you look at the specifics, I mean, was was there an event like this? There could have been. Um, but the significance, and, and if you read some of the, the books uh, that were written on this, the significance of the event seems to have uh, taken on added meaning as the fundamentalist movement went on. So it meant something very different in 1930 than it would have in, in, in 1915 or so. Does that make sense? So, yes, there, the, the event could have occurred, and, and Anne is right. There was um, a revelation written by John Taylor but it doesn't have all of the specifics that fundamentalists claim as part of their authority. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. So in fact, it's online. There's a website that's got a lot of really good information called MormonFundamentalism.com, and it's and it's and it's got that the the one you just mentioned on there. And what what's your take on it? Or do you have one? Yeah, given that uh, prophets often come up with revelations that seem to reinforce their own biases, I don't see any reason why John Taylor would not have had such a revelation. What, uh, what I think is really interesting about this is the stock that the fundamentalists put in that revelation, and I think that what that brings forward to me is the uh, the importance to them even you know 150 years after the fact of having the the proper authority to perform these marriages that that authority is still very important to them they think that they they still seem to think that you need to be able to trace the authority for these marriages back to people who were ordained to do so by someone who was who had that authority? Yeah, and appa- apparently John. Part of it. Yeah, appa- apparently John Taylor was in the room with like some bodyguards and some other people, and the legend is that he actually, you know, ordained people to carry on the practice. Is that right? And John. Right. So the difference uh, in this revelation uh, between all the other ones is that we're talking about uh, giving authorization to perform plural marriages outside of the church. So. Up until this time, and all the way up until the manifesto, church leaders, of course, they're, you know, very vocal in their advocacy of plural marriage. But the difference uh, in this revelation that was supposedly given to John Taylor is that he is uh, authorizing a special council of priesthood holders to continue to perform plural marriages outside of the church. And the way the uh, fundamentalists explain this is that the kingdom and the priesthood and the church are all separate things and they can exist apart from each other and they cite as an example of that that the priesthood is restored a year before the church is restored and then the kingdom is restored you know a couple a decade or a half later when Joseph Smith sets up the council of the 50 in Nauvoo so tell our listeners again the the, the priesthood is separate from what's separate from what the priesthood is separate from the church, is separate from the kingdom, according to fundamentalist belief. So the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, for example, is restored in 1829. The church isn't restored until the next year, 1830. So they say, well, obviously, therefore, the priesthood can exist on earth without the church existing. And likewise, then they, they say the kingdom of God on earth, uh, sometimes, I think, in mainstream LDS belief, uh, the kingdom is referred to, you know, you use that as kind of a, a, a reference for the church, the church and the kingdom are kind of the same together, but for the fundamentalists, the kingdom is separate, and it was a political entity that is set up uh, when Joseph Smith makes this council in Nauvoo called the Council of the Fifty that included people who are not members of the church, and the goal of it is to be a uh, secular government to uh, elect him to be president and also uh, attend to other secular concerns. Why was Joseph setting up something separate from the church? Well, I mean, he was, I think, called to restore that. The Council of the Kingdom of God through the Council of Fifty? Yeah, sir, sure, exactly. So he's restoring things throughout his entire ministry. So he starts out, he's restoring the priesthood, he's restoring the 
gospel of the Nephites, he's restoring the church, he restores later the Melchizedek priesthood, restores patriarchal marriage, the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, and then finally he's setting up the kingdom of God on earth. Which is a government. Yes. And he's doing that while he's running for president? It's the Council of the Fifty that nominate him to for the presidency, and then they are charged uh, with campaigning so that they spread his campaign around. Okay, so so Tom, did you have a couple things you had looked up on the internet while we were talking? Oh yeah, while well, while we were here, um, the distinction between the 1886 revelation and the actual ordinations um, is as follows. And I'll email these links to you, John. I, I found the actual text of that 1886 revelation, September 27th, and it's it it doesn't speak of uh, specific ordinations. But the explanations I'm here looking on say that the, the fundamentalists say, well, that's because at the time it wasn't safe to to, uh, to go into specifics or name names as to who had been ordained. Now, uh, Lauren Woolley, who uh, was one of the uh, members of that council later in 1912, came out and uh, offered an explanation uh, of who was there and what happened, and that's when that's where the claim of the, the ordinations come in. And later, uh, the Albright Group, what's also known as uh, the Apostolic United Brethren, went to actually went to D. Michael Quinn in 1991 to see if he could verify um, these ordinations. And he, he here's his quote: He says, "As a historian, I have no evidence that there was a setting apart or an ordination in 1886. However," I do have, as early as 1906, a reference by loyal church members that there had been men who had been set to keep plural marriage alive no matter what. And that certainly is support for the account of 1886, but it doesn't refer in any specific way to the 1886 ordination. I would be more than happy to find verification, and if I did find it, I certainly wouldn't conceal evidence of the ordination of the men in 1886, and we, I think we can trust that D. Michael Quinn wouldn't, um, and to continue, to continue plural marriage. But aside from the one reference I gave you in 1906, I find no evidence of that event prior to Lauren Woolley's detailed statements on various occasions in the 1920s concerning the 1886 revelation. So what we have is we have an account of a revelation and then an account of an ordination. The revelation account it can be verified in 1886, but the specifics of the ordination aren't till later. And the, and the explanation by fundamentalists is that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just they just there just couldn't be specifics put into writing for obvious reasons in 1886. It just seems like you know I I I grew up in a church that was so correlated where everything was in order and official. And this notion of John Taylor just sort of having some bodyguards and some friends in a room and, okay, the Quorum of the Twelve's not there, the First Presidency's not there, and he's just telling some of these side people, okay, go keep the practice alive and we'll keep the church going. I don't know. For me, because of my biases, it just sort of strains credulity. It feels like a like a revisionist history sort of uh, attempts to to claim legitimacy on the part of the fundamentalists, but I don't mean to, I don't mean to, you know, discredit them or call them liars or. It just feels weird to me, John Hamer. Why don't you weigh in on? Well, it's a it's a faith claim for sure. So I mean, it is there. We, like like we we're saying, like Michael Quinn there is saying in that quote, it can't be proved or disproved by history or historical records. And so for the fundamentalists, it's a faith claim. But for you, for your experience growing up in a correlated church. Well, that's not the church that John Taylor was leading. John Taylor was leading a church where he was spending 
much of his time in the underground where he was in effectively in exile or in hiding because the federal government was putting so much pressure on the LDS church to give up the practice of polygamy, you know, and so as a result, John, John Taylor wasn't able to, you know, be seen in public. Church, the church had been disincorp is being disincorporated. Uh, church property is being seized. I mean, this is a different kind of thing. You didn't have the FBI coming to your ward and seizing control of the stake center or something like that. I mean, so there, there, there was a different kind of operation at the time. So he couldn't have called the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve together because they were all in jail or in, under house arrest or hiding somewhere. Is that right? He might have been. Yeah, able that to would make. Them. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that would make that would make sense. And so, it, yeah, just like John said, in the D. Michael Quinn quote says it comes down to a question of faith. It can't be proven or disproven, and uh, you know the other interesting thing about this is a lot of uh, a lot of other schisms in religion happen w with seminal moments. And I think the interesting thing with Mormon fundamentalism is it's this gradual departure that really spans several decades. You know, it actually begins in 1886, even before the first manifesto, uh, and, uh, and, it, and it's several decades later before a clear and distinct uh, distinct separation is made. And I even say that even when this clear and distinct separation is made, yeah, they're getting excommunicated from the mainstream church. But in a lot of cases, they aren't setting up. The, you know, the Apostolic United Brethren, I think even at this point, are, are specifically claim that they're not a church. They're not setting up a separate church. You know, it, it, the FLDS church now has has come out and they've incorporated as a church. But for a long time, they considered the church, the LDS church, to be the church. They just think that the LDS church has fallen into a state of corruption and now they are... They are living the principle outside of the church, in you know, in using pr true priesthood. Right, and, and go ahead, go ahead, John. Go ahead. no, you please, Tom. Okay, I was just, just going to say, yeah, and that's exactly right. That's where John's earlier discussion, which is so important to understand between the distinction of of the kingdom and the church, is is so important because a lot of the fundamentalists, um, not so much the FLDS anymore, still see the church as being quote unquote true and see their role as is keeping alive this living vessel of th that is the principle or, or plural marriage to be later, in many ways, delivered back to the Church once the Church uh, redeems itself and comes around and, and repents for rejecting plural marriage. Man, it almost sounds like uh, that Tom Cruise movie about Catholicism, uh, The Da Vinci Code, like this secret order that's keeping something that the rest of the Church isn't really part of. It's interesting. Well, isn't it true that John Taylor's son was excommunicated? Yes. Yes. Well, he was. Let me let me pull this up here because I've got that's something I just pulled up. John, it was actually there were two apostles that ran ran afoul of the uh, second manifesto. It was John W. Taylor and Matthias Cowley. Right. I think, and, that I think that they're dropped from the Torum of the Twelve, but they're not excommunicated. If I'm, at least Cowell. See, I, one, was, one was excommunicated, and the other wasn't. Let me pull a okay. to see who, who was who, because I don't want to screw this up. Yeah, I know one um, was excommunicated for sure. Both both resigned from the Quorum of the Twelve over the, the Second Manifesto. And this is an interesting thing, too. Both of them felt very strongly that, that the, the Manifestos um, didn't ban polygamy, but just banned them in the United States. So they wanted to see polygamy continue outside of the United States. That was a big part of their their uh, their gripe. So they, they both resigned in 1905, um, uh, and he was excommunicated. John Who? W. Taylor was excommunicated in 1911. I don't think Matthias Kelly was. I'll look in just a second. Um, and he was actually posthumously baptized back into the church in 1916. 
Uh, Whoa. And so, yeah, right. So that that would that's some interesting evidence because it, if he was willing to go to the mat for polygamy, he must have, you know, you, you would assume that he just heard his father, who was a prophet, seer, and revelator, and leader of the church, probably throw down the gauntlet that polygamy was going to stay a part of the church and was protesting that, right? Right. Or that could have been his interpretation. Or, you know, I mean, of course, everybody had... I mean, when you, when you, when you make a, a revelation, the initial revelation that Joseph Smith makes, and call something a new and everlasting covenant, I mean, that's the language of this John Taylor revelation. God says... How can I revoke a new? How can I revoke a covenant that is everlasting? So I mean, that's that's I think part of the people's disconnect on it. And so one of the way, one of the things though that if you are a, a believing uh, person in the mainstream church, okay, well you can have you have continuing revelation, and there may be well be a reason you know that uh, God has to give another revelation to change that. So. Well, I, Cowley, as you say, Cowley was not excommunicated. His priesthood was suspended in 1911, and then they actually reinstated it in, 19, in 1936. Right, but, and he died in 1940. So he was never excommunicated, and he even had his priesthood restored later. But just he was not John W. Taylor. To, but he was not restored to the 12th. He was not restored to the 12th. He just had his, his generic priesthood restored. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, John. actually, John W. Taylor getting mad about institutional polygamy doesn't seem to jive with his dad setting up secret polygamy on the side, right? If he had known that his dad set up something secret on the side, why would he care about the church's institutional practice of polygamy? Because he'd know that the the thing on the side was set up separate from the church. Does that question make sense at all to you guys? Yeah, it does. You're saying he if if he was aware of the 1886 ordinations that 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 uh, his protests would have been unnecessary. Yeah, you're saying basically. So either he didn't see him as legitimate or didn't know about him, or his mind changed over time. I don't know. Well, That's or it's not that, But another thing that happens here, even even if this did happen, okay, even if there were ordinations to do things outside the church, it wasn't that Taylor then immediately said, "Well, we're all going to, you know, I've set this this secret process up, and we're all going to." stop practicing it now he taylor dies and he hasn't caved into that pressure so the manifesto comes under wilford woodruff and so it i mean it could be still though that his son thinks that it should go on outside the church but it should also continue to go on inside the church and that he doesn't agree with wilford woodruff or he thinks that wilford woodruff's manifesto only to takes you know only is a, an advice to members of the church inside the u.s or whatever it is so i think that in the end there, there are re- way, you could argue it both ways, and it's a faith claim for both sides of the schism. Sure. Well, before we go to the go to the actual schisms, Anne, did you want to add any comments or thoughts? No. <laughs> no, I, it's it's it, there's there's just been a whole lot of stuff going back and forth, and I've had a whole lot of ideas cross my mind, and whoosh, they're gone. So. <laughs> Do you want to sing a little bit of your favorite song tonight? No, that's okay. I got it wrong once. I'm not going to get it wrong again. <laughs> okay. All right, Tom, why don't you take us into the, the schisms then? Okay. Um, so this 1886 revelation, and I'm glad we spent a lot of time on this because this really is uh, a common thread that a lot but not all fundamentalists uh, refer to. Of course, if uh, I think the notable exceptions would be uh, James Armstrong down in Manti would be one, uh, and, and a few others. But even those that are independent fundamentalists, 
will trace their authority to perform marriages back to this 1886 event. Uh, and so it, it, it's very critical. So this 1886 revelation uh, and then the ordinations, they, they set up what's called, and, and John referred to this as the Council of Friends, uh, and the original council included John Barlow, J. Leslie Brogman, Louis Kelch, Joseph Musser, Grand Woolley, Charles Zitting, uh, and Charles Zitting. And so they, they governed, and over time, they, I believe they added two more members, but they would... Um, as one member died, they would just add another person. They would they would follow kind of the uh, the tradition set up within uh, the LDS Church in, in in the 19th century. But having a council rule became quite uh, problematic to have that kind of a consensus building to make decisions. And so a, a guy by the name of John Barlow steps up, and he comes up with a doctrine that's called uh, one man rule. And this is something that persists and is especially important in the FLDS church today. This is where uh, they have, where the idea of having Rulin Jeffs or Warren Jeffs as the one-man rule begins to come out of. We'll get to that in, in a little bit. And so this group has people that are living in Salt Lake, uh, in Salt Lake County, but then also a group that goes in and settles what is the Short Creek area. And they have uh, members of the council that live in both areas, and they rotate people through and finally, after John Barlow dies, um, Joseph Musser, who's one of the members, attempts to call Rulin Allred uh, to the to, to the council. And the uh, the the others in the group really don't like this. He's eventually called, but this is where this, the, one of the first major schisms happens. Uh, the guys down in Colorado City and Short Creek decide they don't want to recognize Rulin Allred's authority. And so they break away formally. And, uh, and, and then you get Allred's group, which eventually becomes the Apostolic United Brethren. And, and the, the geographic locations of these two groups, I think, has a profound effect upon where they end up going. Um, the Allred group being far more mainstream, but still, you know, very orthodox. Uh, and then the FLDS group, uh, which obviously is a, a little bit more, more orthodox than that. So any questions so far? Or comments? Uh-uh. Yeah. So that yeah. Okay. So that that's that's basically how they have the two largest two groups. You know, the one is based in Bluffdale there in Salt Lake Valley, and then the other one down in the Arizona Strip, which is the area between the Utah border and the Grand Canyon. And so it's very hard to. It was set up down there because it's very hard to patrol. In a lot of cases, uh, even back when the, it was the LDS Church that was in doing the practice of polygamy, a lot of cases communities that were set up to practice polygamy were set up along the borders and so you'll find that along the border between Nevada and Utah Nevada I'm sorry Utah and Colorado Utah and Arizona Montana and Alberta all those all those kind of places Mexico and and Arizona that those are the kind of places where these communities are because if, because of policemen from Utah come to get them they can run across the border they can and, run across the border and yeah. it's outside their jurisdiction and so Short Creek is what the original settlement down there that's the biggest settlement um, is now formally called Hilldale, Utah, and Colorado City, Arizona. And it's one town, really, but it, it spans across the, the Utah-Arizona border. That's why the states would have to work together to prosecute polygamy, because they would have to get the cops down there at the same time to catch them at the border. In, but, but for a lot of years, uh, in, in the exception being the uh, 1953 raid, which we'll get to in just a minute, 
the uh, the authorities left these, this group alone because it was so remote geographically. It, it's Colorado City, uh, especially from the Arizona side, from uh, some of the some of the bigger cities in the Strip. I guess if there are any big cities, and even from St. George, it's it's fairly difficult to get there. Uh, and it would have been, especially in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, now there's a, a decent highway that goes there. Uh, but it, but you really have got to make a really concerted effort to get down there, aside from being right on the border. Interesting. I mean, to get to get from anywhere in Arizona, there you've got to cross the Grand Canyon. So you can imagine it's not an easy way to you know an easy thing to do. Yeah, yeah, it is. So people people really, uh, for the most part, left them alone, with with the exception of the 1953 raid, which I, I think has had uh, profound effects and 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 had a lot of long lasting negative effects on on the community, and and was the impetus for a lot of the crimes that we see now that come out of out of that community. Um, anyway, so, so we've got the, the two different groups, and uh, the, there was a famous Short Creek Raid in 1953. It was ordered by Arizona Governor John Pyle, and he, he sent in authorities to, uh, to, to break down the, this community. And it happened in the middle of the night, and they, they gathered the children at the school uh, in fear they ended up taking the kids out. They took them to uh, live in, in other cities in Arizona with other families. And a lot of these families, and this is something that's not known, weren't reunited for years. I mean, we're talking some of these families were separated for five or six years as a result of this raid. Uh, and there were, it was very difficult for a lot of them to become reunited. Uh, and, and a lot of the men went to jail, but, but most ended up eventually getting back to Short Creek. And, of course, the effect of this 1953 raid is is an understandable one. The community no longer trusts outsiders, and they don't trust the government, and so they they entrench themselves and isolate themselves further. They're not just geographically isolated at this point, but socially isolated, economically isolated, and this makes, uh, it, in my opinion, as I look at this, and this is just my opinion, this is where a, a lot of of, uh, of the crimes now that people are, are starting to see and have dealt with in the last few years come from, this isolation and this this complete withdrawal from society that comes out of this 1953 raid and this distrust of outsiders. So it was a disaster. I mean, they had they had. I think it was was it uh, was it People mag? What, what magazine was it, John? Do you know? Hammer. That had it on. Hammer, that had the breakups on the on the cover and everything. They had like the that. pictures. Yeah, yeah I mean, they, I, they, yeah, it was like you say, it's like life or or something. <laughs> I don't know. It was but life. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, I think, and and the problem with it was then too the other effect that it has is it has this big effect outside the community on um, on Arizona. So Arizona at the time was a much smaller state population wise than it is now, and so the polygamists, you know, in the men that are all being prosecuted in a pretty savvy way, all demand separate uh, jury trials, and so it becomes unbelievably prohibitively expensive for the state of Arizona to try all these trials to put all of these kids into into adoptive foster homes, and meanwhile, you have this uh, these on the cover of magazines families getting you know of course they're polygamous families, but they're families that are getting uh, split apart where kids are getting taken out of out of mothers' arms and things like that, and it just has screaming a devastating yeah screaming and crying, and so it has a devastating effect on on Governor Pyle, who uh, he was up for re-election the next year, and he's just you know turned out of office, and so that uh, that was a lesson that was also. You know, you know, picked up on by politicians subsequently, and so this was kind of the end of uh, polygamy 
prosecutions in a kind of big way until very recently. Isn't this right yeah, before? Think, isn't this right before Barry Goldwater rose to prominence? Barry Goldwater well, would have ran for president in eighteen in nineteen sixty four, right? Right. So it's a that's ten it's years. A decade, decade later. Okay. So he so, maybe maybe he's maybe he's rising to power in Arizona at that time. I don't know. Maybe he, I don't know what his background before that in Arizona is. Okay. Sorry, it was, just, it was kind of irrelevant. Tom, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say yeah, just exactly what John said. So, so as far as the isolation goes, you've got two effects of this 1953 raid. You've got the uh, fundamentalists, which retreat further from um, the outside society, and then you've got politicians, which retreat away from the issue of polygamy. So this sets up a, a scenario for, for the next 50 years where they almost don't exist. I mean, they're literally completely ignored by the outside world. Uh, and so, and that's where uh, a lot of the practices of marrying younger girls comes in, of, of welfare fraud, not paying property taxes. Is uh, This is where a lot of that comes into play because nobody's going to go after any of these individual crimes because the political risks are just too astronomical. Now, Tom, that... You know, we all know that that, and and I I don't mean this disrespectfully, but we all know that Joseph Smith took you know sixteen, fifteen year olds uh, to, to, as brides, and so what? Do we have any evidence to think that that uh, teenage brides within these uh, fundamentalist polygamous groups didn't start until the nineteen sixties, or is that just uh, an assumption or anecdotal? Um, I've, I've got a book here. It, it's for, do you guys ever, have you ever heard of Ben Beislein? Any of you? I haven't. Okay. He, he, he was, um, raised here in Cache Valley and, uh, his family ended up, uh, aligning with this group in the 1930s and forties. And so he was not born into the FLDS church, but he was essentially raised in it. He ended up leaving, um, over some disputes, but he's got a, a book he's written. He's got no formal, uh, education or training, but it's actually done really well. It's called Colorado City Polygamous. And the, the gist I get from his book is that, um, is that yeah, what, that the isolation is what it brought, it brought it about. There were some people within the FLDS church, though, who really tried to do some amazing things without a lot of success. One of them was a guy by the name of Marion Hammond, and he was a part of the council for a number of years, and he was somebody that really pushed schools, and he, he, he emphasized education, he emphasized, um, um, I, I, I wouldn't say gender equality, but certainly moving more in that direction from where the FLDS Church was. And eventually, Did, didn't he end up? He doesn't he end up being one of the leaders of the Centennial Park group? Or yeah, his, that's exactly okay. what happened. He he was more moderate and more willing to work with the outside. And so, just to the south of Colorado City, just over the hill, there's another little enclave called Centennial Park, and that's that's his group. And they're the ones that often. They're, they're more open. They work well with um, government officials. There's, there's transparency in the community. Uh, a lot of times if you see a, like a group of polygamist women interviewed on ABC, it, it'll generally be from Centennial Park. They're very open about uh, their lifestyle, and they, even a lot of the women uh, will go on national television and advocate for the legalization or at least the decriminalization of, of polygamy and, and, and its acceptance. So... Uh, he, he's somebody that did a, a tremendous, and I, I don't have time to go into all the details, but did a tremendous amount of good and worked towards that uh, while he was within the FLDS Church. What's the name again? His, his name is Marion Hammond. Okay. 
And as I read, and so we and, should and, also and, make the point, you know, like, that you're making right now is that there is a, a huge diversity, you know, um, among Mormon or fundamentalist Mormons. And you know, when we're starting to talk now about problems that um, with welfare fraud and other sorts of things that are going on in the FLDS community, the FLDS community represents only, you know, like less than a quarter of the fundamentalist Mormon community. Uh, and there's all sorts of other groups that, that we've already mentioned. A few of them being the All Red Group, the Centennial Park Group. There's a bunch of other ones. Yeah. And, and John, in this article in the in your uh, Schism book that you said, it actually the largest group of polygamist Mormons are independent. Right. Well, that's a, so the largest group is a non-group or whatever. So the, if exactly. you were going to take the 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 plurality, the 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 largest single unit of them is a it would be people who are practicing independently of any group right good point Ann. I, I also think it's interesting to bring up you know we've been talking so much about um and, and and you know what would this being you know mormon matters at all the the mormon aspects of this but the some of the modern some of the modern advocates for polygamy uh, uh are not they're not mormon there there's a group um, is it, it? It's. I don't believe it's principal voices. Uh, I think it's referenced in the Slate article that we were going to discuss. That there's that there are evangelical Christian groups that are advocating for legalization of of marriage, of polygamy. Excuse me. Um, yeah, so, principal, principal Voices is the is the fundamentalist Mormon advocacy group. It, it, that's an FLDS. That one's the one. So yeah, no, it's not FLDS. It's it's okay. it, it, it's but it's but it is a Mormon fundamentalist. It is a Mormon group. group. Principal okay. Voices. Okay. Because it's there are there are others that are advocating for that, and it's kind of interesting if you do a web search on the topic, you can often find people who are looking for second wives who aren't Mormon in, in any way, shape, or form. They just, I, I, I don't know if you've read this, I, uh, the blogger uh, Borden Bernal, yes. one of the things that she blogged is that, and she's a convert to the church, is that when she was, when she was a girl, her father took a second wife. Hmm. Whoa. I mean, for no, and they they don't know why. They never really talked about it, but there was a, a second woman moved in, and she was another wife. So it's uh, we 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 tend to think of polygamists, the especially the modern ones. The modern ones are Mormon, and once again, it's Mormon matters, and so that's where our focus is going to be. And I'm sure that that is by far. A, the largest single subset. Well, it, may not, it, may, of it may not be because there may well be as many practicing Muslim polygamists in, yes, yes, in the United right. States now today as 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 practicing fundamentalist Mormons. Because of the because of the esti- the best estimate that we have for um, fundamentalist Mormons, it's what thirty seven thousand people, give or take, and yet and, and but only about half of them. I mean, they believe in fundamental Mormon, fundamentalist Mormon principles, including polygamy, but only about half of them are actually practicing. So, I mean, I think that um, John was mentioning Ann Wilde, you know, who was saying how she 
had been in a polygamous marriage. Well, she's still a Mormon fundamentalist, but she her her husband has died, so she's technically not practicing polygamy anymore because she's a widow. Right. Well, before we jump into this Slate article that sort of brings it really to the modern, Tom, what, what else did you want to talk to us about in terms of the sex? Um, uh, just just a couple of uh, real uh, quick things that trace. That, so we get from, uh, from, from Barlow down to Warren Jeffs with the FLDS, kind of paint a real brief picture. And John Hamer, if you want to jump in and add anything or correct anything, that'd be fine. Um, Leroy Johnson led the sect from 1954 to 1986. And towards the end of his administration, if you want to call it that, um, he was uh, greatly influenced by a guy named Dan, by the name of Dan Barlow, who did a lot of the uh, of uh, enforcement, I guess is the way we would put it, in the town, and uh, told Leroy Johnson some things about Marion Hammond that, according to Ben Beislein's book, weren't exactly true that were the catalyst for Marion Hammond leaving. And Leroy Johnson dies, Ruland Jeffs comes in, and each of these successive individuals tends to become more orthodox, uh, more controlling, and, and more overbearing. Uh, and then you eventually get to Warren Jeffs. The other thing that I want to mention, too, about the FLDS Church is the way that city was built was pretty interesting. And, and a lot of it was done, a lot of the effective building of uh, infrastructure was done by Marion Hammond, where they'd get a group of people together, and everybody would pay money into a, a proverbial pot, and they'd use the money to build one house at a time until everybody had a house. Uh, and, and so until Marion Hammond came along, they were really living in shacks in just pretty awful conditions down in Colorado City and, and Hilldale. And he was really responsible for a lot of the uh, movement forward in terms of homes and schools and infrastructure. So that's just that kind of a summary. And, and if you want more information, Ben Beislein's book's pretty good, and there's a lot of other stuff online. But uh, that's kind of a, a general summary there. Uh, of how it happened, uh, and then I, and I then guess I, one comment I would make is that you're kind of you're kind of phrasing it as it, as people becoming I don't know more concerned. You're saying more orthodox, and I think that uh, I think that different fundamentalists would argue with what with whether it's more orthodox or less, because in a way, some of them consider that the original rule by council is actually the orthodox position, and that moving closer and closer and to stricter and stricter one-man rule is is betra a betrayal of fundamentalist Mormon principles, but obviously the people who are in the one-man rule group are thinking the other way. So, Right. Controlling is probably a better word then. More authoritative. I, you're right. Orthodox is probably yeah. not the best word. More authoritative is probably Maybe the, even the authoritarian, best. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And then, the, and then the, last, the last thing, obviously, that takes us up uh, to the most recent uh, aspects is that the FLDS church under Warren Jeffs uh, has uh, gone and built a brand new settlement off in Texas in kind of the wastelands of western Texas and this hey. is included <laughs> well there aren't a lot of people in this county that they're in so it's yeah. El Dorado is the city there and there's pretty much nothing else in the county and they uh, they've produced a City that's kind of on the same plat of Zion that you know that Utah communities were all laid out in the 19th century or the Mormon communities before that, and then right in the middle of it, they've built a pretty impressive temple that they've already right. finished. And then subsequently, or while that was happening, you know, Warren Jess has of course been arrested, and that's made headlines too. Yeah, and it looks like too with that El Dorado community in in one of South Dakota that those that are, are taken there, and this is not real clear, but they seem to be. Um, hand selected for uh, for loyalty and, and other reasons. 
uh, to, to be able to have uh, what, what's probably seen as a privilege to uh, be a part of, of, of especially the Eldorado project. Hmm. And then uh, just uh, uh, do, you, do you guys want to talk about Jim Harmstrom at all, or kind of leave that one alone? Go ahead, just give well, us, just give just us. say that you know there's a there's a there's other you know there are other fundamentalist Mormon groups and one of them uh, is this Jim Harmston group which is based in Manti. There's a little red store, little red red brick store that is the headquarters for their church, which is called the True and Living Church of Jesus Christ of Saints of the Last Day or TLC they call it. And <laughs> so he has a completely separate um, uh, he where he he is he breaks directly from the LDS Church. He doesn't claim the same line of authority that comes from the priesthood council, the council of friends, and instead he has um, he's set up his own system through direct revelation, and it's very different. It ends up being quite different from the other fundamentalists, and in fact, uh, the other fundamentalists in some cases don't consider them to be part of the Mormon fundamentalism. <laughs> One of the reasons why, for example, is that they believe in. Uh, other other doctrines that aren't early fundamental doctrines. So, for example, they believe in a kind of a reincarnation where you have multiple uh, mortal probations or MMPs. And so, after if it, something has if your life hasn't worked out, if my understanding of it, that you go back and go through another probationary period. And of course, this is a, it would it would have to represent a new understanding or a new revelation than anything that was revealed at the time of Joseph Smith or yeah. any of the early church leaders. Do you guys ever listen to uh, This American Life? Sure. Yeah, they there's had a, great, a great story on the TLC. Yeah, yeah they had a great story on the, on the TLC. I'm sure if you looked it up online, you could find it. But it was really yeah. fascinating. Uh, it, it went into a specific um, internal squabble that they had. Uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting. What, anyway. re- what really struck me about that, and, and the same with Ann Wilde, you know, you hear these people bear their testimonies. You know, they're... You, they don't come across always as just these weirdo kooks. I mean, you hear them bear their testimony. They have the same quiver in their voice that, that you hear in an LDS church testimony. They have the same level of conviction. They're, they're not, you know, the ones, the ones that I've met, they're not just these uneducated people that look weird. They're, they're very smart, intelligent, you know, committed, faithful people. Um, you know, at least the ones that I've met. And so it's bizarre to hear them bear testimony to the things they, they know to be true because it sounds just awful like a traditional LDS person bearing their testimony except for the fact that they they believe in the plurality of wives, I guess. Have you guys well, had yeah, the same experience? They're very, they're very, very Mormon. They're just not LDS Mormon. You know, it's just they have the same, we all have, you know, in that way, the same common heritage, but they have, they've had taken a different path in, intervening-wise. It's not just the same heritage, and a lot of the groups, especially the uh, Apostolic United Brethren and, and Harmstrom's group, a substantial amount of their, um, uh, you, you hate to use the word membership with the, the Apostolic Brethren, but of their group, are people that were born into the LDS Church and then came later. So they would have uh, much of the same contemporary Mormon speak or LDS speak that uh, we would be familiar with. Yeah, now... I'm I'm going to just throw one thing out before we move on to the to the um to the final segment of the show and that's the following. I was interviewing Paul Toscano last week um and and it was interesting to hear him talk about why what what his main beef was with the church before he got excommunicated. And as I was able to really boil it down, it was that he felt that he had a good understanding of the you know the 
the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, and you know the nature of theology for the for the Mormon Church, but that the leaders had did not understand it. That you know the, the first presidency of the Quorum of Twelve just didn't fundamentally understand the nature of God and and the basic theology of the Church or the Christology as he calls it. And and you know his sort of perspective when he was getting really angry before he got excommunicated was literally this: that if only the church leaders would listen to him, and and come to understand the 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 nature of God and and the true theology of the church like he understood it, then he would have been very happy because then they would be leading the church in the right direction, and that seems to be the same position of fundamentalists that well this is god's one and only true church it's just that just like all the other churches fell into apostasy before joseph smith it looks like this one has fallen into apostasy too and so they're going to carry it on until the church becomes uncorrupt again but in the meantime they're not going to get to go to the temple and have the temple blessings and i guess what i'm saying is man that's a hard position to be in to still be believing in the restoration but to believe that the restoration itself has fallen into apostasy, just like all the other dispensations. I I would tend to become an atheist before I would tend to think that Mormonism were still true, but that the, the LDS church is corrupt. And I know John Hamer's probably going to jump down my throat here, but what a hard position to be in that even the LDS church fell into apostasy. I mean, was that anticipated by Joseph that... that his church was going to be set up and then again fall into apostasy? How do you maintain that position? Well, the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon maintain that position. So, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, this is a this is something that people have had since the since the foundation of Mormonism. You look at the original Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. How many of them ended up being LDS Utah apostles? It's it's half. You know, how you look at the witnesses of the Book of Mormon. It's none. You know. So I mean, people um, and 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 David Whitmer and Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery, you know, were continued to be believing Latter Day Saints. David Whitmer, in the end, is in his own Church of Christ, you know, in Richmond, Missouri, where he kind of left the left the rest of the movement go by. So, well, and you know, the position the position of the LDS Church is that the Church that Jesus Christ Himself established could not. Sur- did not survive beyond the deaths of the apostles. So why should it be any different the second time? Oh, it's not but- the second time because also the Book of Mormon it happens. So Christ also visits the um, the Nephites, and the Nephites have a have a church that's set up with apostles and everything like that, and that also falls into apostasy. But the Mormonism I grew up in is that the church will be restored and shall never again be taken away from the earth. Is that something added in the 20th century? No, that was that was there the whole time. Maybe maybe apostasy from a fundamentalist perspective, and I don't want to speak on behalf of anybody. For some, might be a bit of a strong word. Uh, and, you know, and wild be great to ask us. Maybe errant is a better word because apostasy, you know, really in my mind means almost a complete death. And there's certainly a lot of fundamentalists that don't see the church as being completely dead, but errant in a lot of ways, but still fulfilling a divine divine role and commission. And perhaps that's how many of them reconcile it, that it's not a, a full apostasy, but rather a, a temporary straying or, or uh, a, a, a tainting, if you will. Well, and, and that goes back to the original, the original thesis that there are three pieces of this and that they're not the same. 
the church, the priesthood, the kingdom, and they're not the same. So it, that actually, that, that they're maintaining a peace that the church is not able to maintain. Right. Right. That's definitely the perspective of a bunch of fundamentalist Mormons. I mean, and some of them, though, I do think that some of them, I think, were holding out that view, and then, and then actually, there's a moment, an, another moment of, of of more complete schism for some when the uh, the second de- official declaration, not the second manifesto, but when we have in the 70s the uh, ending of priesthood discrimination on the basis of race. I know that that for maybe I think the FLDS was a, a second moment which where they decided well now the church isn't just errant it's it's now past errant and that's why they feel authorized to build their own temple and go on because they're no longer they're no longer going to go to LDS temples yeah it's just crazy if you don't believe in an anthropomorphic god and you just kind of think of god as a some type of force in the universe then you can accept all sorts of messiness and craziness etc but if you still believe in an exalt a god who's an exalted man who sort of brings his human logic into his godhood, then this whole Mormonism thing, especially as it goes into fundamentalism, just seems harder and harder to to endure. Do do any of you guys relate to that notion? Um, you know, I, I had a discussion that was kind of interesting a while with with a family friend who made the comment that uh, it's kind of interesting when he thought, you know, those all those fundamentalists have really done a good job of maintaining 19th century polygamy. But the truth of the matter is, whatever branch you see of the Latter-day Saint movement, none remains unchanged. All, all are evolving. So I think no matter where you look in the Latter-day Saint movement, you're going to have people having to deal with some of the inconsistencies that come as a result of that evolution. Whether you're talking about members of the LDS Church, the Community of Christ, or even some of the fundamentalist groups. Everybody's dealing with that on some level. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point.
To hear more of this wonderful music, please check out ClaytonPixton.com. That's C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-P-I-X-T-O-N.com. Thank you very much.